Just like a muscle, here we will grow stronger for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. So please, brothers and sisters, join me here at Jacked for Jesus. Welcome back, everybody, to Jacked for Jesus. Uh, my name is Andrew Kufal, and today we are um, deep diving into the fourth episode of, this, of the series, Armor of God. And to kind of recap the last three pieces of the Armor of God that we've talked about. The first one being the belt of truth. I think as Christians this makes a whole lot of sense. Um, it's the idea that and without truth it's kind of hard to um, keep our pants up <laughs> in kind of a comedic sense. But um, more, more specifically, truth is what allows us to discern what is, what is actually truth and what is wrong. And without truth it's hard for us to discern when we need to take action, when something's wrong, when something's good. Um, wow, there's some gunshots outside. I'm guessing someone's hunting. Um, but I, I hope you guys can't hear that. It's gunshots or fireworks, I can't tell. But um, anyway, so that's the belt of truth. Um, truth is very pivotal for the Christian faith. And in fact, I think it's one of the most critical parts of the Christian faith. Um, and we're even told that the truth sets us free and eliminates um, discernment for us and does a lot for us um, in spiritual warfare. The second piece of the armor of God is the breastplate of righteousness. And when we think about a breastplate, it's like this big chunk of armor in the front of our torso. And so it can take a lot of damage. It can take a lot of blows. Um, and, it, and it defends us in a relatively vulnerable part of our body. Um, and that's how we pro approach righteousness. There's kind of two aspects of righteousness that I think of when I look at the breastplate of righteousness. One is imputed righteous righteousness. Through Jesus' work on the cross, he has imputed our sin into him and conquered our sin, put our sin to death. Um, and because of him, because of him and his work on the cross, though the, those of us who put our faith in God Jesus then imputes his righteousness into us. So in a sense, we're made, clean, we're made clean and blameless in the eyes of God. And having that confidence and that security um, does a lot of protection. That protects us a lot as Christians. Um, but I think another aspect of the breastplate of righteousness is that um, we can be practically righteous. Being practically righteous means like um, seeking to live holy lives, seeking to actually follow Jesus' commandments and whatnot. When we live that kind of life, um, it helps protect us from a lot of the dangers um, and the death and the temptation of sin um, and, of being, and of deception and of being led astray. And so that's the second piece of the armor of God. The third piece is the shoes of readiness. Um, and this, this is one that I was kind of confused about when I first read about it. Um, but another word for readiness to kind of clear it up is like like being prepared. So it's like being ready in the sense of like, okay, we're prepared to dig our heels into the ground, really get serious and to really work um, for the gospel of grace. And so when we look at the shoes of readiness, there's kind of two aspects of it. One is that um, like shoes, when we look at shoes in the armor back in the time when the, this was written, a lot of times they would have like nails or kind of spikes on the bottom of their, on the shoes. Kind of like if you run track or you play football or soccer, like you have cleats, you have the spikes. 
Likewise, they, they kind of had those on their shoes as well, so that when they were fighting or when they were running, they had better traction on the ground and they wouldn't fall over. Because they knew if they fell if they fell over, that they they would be done for. Basically, they would be they would be defeated by their enemy. So for the shoes of readiness, we we kind of get this image of um, being prepared by the gospel of grace, and with that prepare with that readiness we can really dig our feet into the ground with confidence we can know that we're taking the right stance and it informs us what stance to take um, depending on what situation we're in and so it's kind of this really a kind of intricate analogy of what readiness should look like um, and I would say it's defined in two ways one is security and salvation so like we're ready in the sense that we know we're, we're that we're secure and that we're saved and that we're ready in the sense that um, we don't have to worry about losing. Like we know we're guaranteed victory. And then the other sense, it's a, it's a preparation that comes from understanding the cost. When you have to dig your heels into the ground, that means you're facing enemy territory. You're facing enemies. And so we kind of just get this picture with the shoes of readiness. Um, and I didn't do a great job recapping that one. But if you're curious about that, go ahead and check out that episode. Today we're we're talking about <laughs> I don't know maybe one of my favorite pieces the armor of God and that's the shield of faith um, and I'm really excited about the shield of faith and we'll um, dive into that today um, but before I do that I just want to go ahead and pray to start this episode out Heavenly Father um, thank you so much for this time together thank you so much for Allow me to read your word and share your word and teach about it, Lord. And I just pray that this time would be fruitful, that you would lead me, Lord. Um, I just I just pray that in my, my opinion and voice wouldn't be heard, but you would be heard, Lord. Um, that your glory, that your power, your grace and love for us would just shine through when we read your word, when we, when we um, analyze your scriptures, God. And I just pray that we would stand secure, um, knowing that you've given us a spirit of victory and freedom and love and that you have won the war against death and sin and illness and um, evil, Lord. You have already won the battle. You said it is finished through your son Jesus Christ on the cross and we thank you, God. Please, Lord, continue to remind us that you are close beside us, that you are near, always near, Lord. And please just encounter us in amazing ways, Lord, and please um, bear good fruit with this episode. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would go before me and ahead of me in this episode, um, and that this would just be an amazing time for all of us, Lord. Please convict us and teach us and remind us of what, of what you've taught us, um, Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this in your mighty, mighty name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, thanks for bearing with me as I um, kind of summarize what we've been talking about. Today, as I said, we're talking about the shield of faith. And to start that conversation, I'm just going to go ahead and reread um, the the couple of verses that we've got all of these armor pieces from. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 17. I mean, for those who are curious, I'm reading ESV translation. And it says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
Okay, so today we are talking about the shield of faith, and I want to just pause for a second and look at how Paul gives us a visualization for all of these aspects of the faith, all of these aspects with a relationship with God and about his word and about um, Jesus himself. Um, and faith is visualized or manifested as a shield. So we have a lot of these armor pieces that are on our body, right? But then shield, and then, but then we have faith as like a shield, like a wall, an impenetrable wall, um, which Paul goes as, as far to say, which can extinguish all the darts of the evil one, all the fiery darts or flaming darts of the evil one. And so we we see that faith is very important for defending against Satan. Um, and um, I think if we start to break into this, it makes it makes it makes sense. Like we hold on to faith to ground ourselves as, as Christians in Jesus Christ. Like we understand that a very famous Bible verse, um, Ephesians chapter two, verse eight through ten. I'm going to paraphrase. I don't have it word to word, but basically it says, um, "For by grace have you been saved through faith, and it's not of ourselves; it's a gift of God." Right? Salvation is not a reward for what we have done, but rather. It's a gift that God has given us. Um, and then it continues and says, we are, um, we are God's masterpiece. We are created anew in Christ Jesus for the good works that he's planned for us to do long ago. Again, that's a rough summary. Apologize for my cat again. There's a lot of background noise right now. I apologize. I, it was so quiet when I started this. I apologize. Um, but we see that faith, even just in the topic of salvation, the, the most um, pivotal part of the Christian life, which is, having faith in Jesus and his work on the cross and in God, that faith is important for that. But I also would say it's important for every aspect of um, the Christian experience, the Christian life, the biblical worldview. Um, and uh, I think one misconception about faith is that it's blind. I, I know a lot of non-Christians, and even some Christians too, even I at one point thought that um, faith was like this blind thing. Like, it's just believing even though we don't have evidence or grounding for what we believe in. It's just kind of this bl blind faith. But the more I thought about that, the more it kind of um, doesn't seem biblical. Um, I think faith, even in how Jesus approached faith, isn't something that's blind. For example, I don't, I don't have the verse on me, but um, Jesus, I think Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he said, um, believe me that my words are not of my own, but that has been given to me by the authority of God. So basically he's saying, don't believe me just because. Believe me because the authority of this, I say these things, the authority that these words have that you can feel in your heart. But then he continues and he says, and even if you don't believe me in that sense, believe me because of the works I have done. So he's saying, look at my works. Look at these miracles and signs and wonders and say, this is evidence for who I am and the message I carry. So even Jesus' approach to evidence to bolster faith and unbelief. It says that we're not putting our faith in something that we're just, ooh, la, 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 we're not sure if this is real or not. Um, we're putting our faith in something because we trust it. And I'll get into that a little bit more in a second. Um, but to kind of look at the implications of not having faith, which I think is part of the reason faith is so important, is that without faith, we oftentimes start to experience doubt or fear or suspicion or temptations. And I think these things are a strong foothold for Satan. If we're doubting God or if we're doubting his word, and Satan can use that as a, 
as a, um, basically as a stepping stone to get to us, to, to lead us astray. And so, if these are his fiery darts, uh, fiery darts of spiritual warfare or doubt or lies or deceptions or fear, um, then we need this shield to protect us from these things. But I also want to acknowledge that being faithful isn't just like an instantaneous experience. It's not like, and, and you're just perfectly full of faith. Rather, it takes time and experience, and it's not unlike how it takes time to perfect using a shield. Like this armor pieces that we have, that we've, we're describing, like the truth, the shoes of readiness, these are things just on us. Like we already knew how to run. We already knew how to move, and it's just on us, right? The helmet's on us, the, the breastplate's on us. But rather, a shield is something, if you haven't used a shield very much, even though that could be the best shield in the world, if you don't know how to use it, then you're going to be kind of clumsy about it. And this is something we actively have to decide to use. The armor is there kind of passively. Like, it'll take attacks for us. We don't have to think about it. But a shield is something we have to focus on and intentionally use in our circumstances. And I don't think faith is any different. I think we're called to use faith in a very intentional way when we're facing hardships, when we're facing doubts and fear and suspicion. We have to make the decision to take this shield that God has given us and to place it in front of us. We know that God has given each of us as Christians um, an amount of faith. And it says, by the amount of faith that you have been given, like work out of that. Do according to the faith given unto you. And that's the shield we're talking about. Um, in addition, if we, the stronger our shield is, or like the stronger our faith is, the better it will deflect attacks. If we have, if we have, let's say we have a wooden shield, it like it's a shield, it'll still take attacks, but if you have a strong enough hit, or if you have an arrow, it might still get through. It's not hard enough and durable enough to take all hits. So likewise, I think as we dwell in Christ, as we walk with Jesus Christ, we should strive for this really strong, hard, impenetrable, durable faith that makes up our shield. Because if it's soft, like wood, then it might splinter. Or with a strong sword, it might it might fracture. Or with fiery darts, it might ca catch a flame and go away. So I think as Christians, we we want this really con this really strong kind of faith, um, and we want to be able to know how to use it. In addition, I think um, that it's not unreasonable to strive for this kind of faith. And in fact, I think this faith, this faith in God, is something that's a very prevalent theme in the Old Testament, especially. And we see with Abraham that Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith. We know that Joseph was so successful and that he was able to um, be a hand for God because of his faith in God and his word. We look at Moses, even though Moses doubted, God gave him faith to continue and to keep going. And even David, David is such a huge example for faith. He sought this kind of faith and if you read his Psalms, you read his works, it's amazing the kind of faith David had in the Lord. And because of that, um, the Lord counted him as righteous. Even Jesus talked about David. Um, so we see that in all aspects, in all aspects, with spiritual warfare, our security in God, with our salvation, um, all of these things is central around faith. And because of that, I want to read some scriptures and read some verses and try to get a more clear picture of faith. It's not going to be a completely exhaustive um, 
picture of faith. I think we could spend hours, if not hundreds of hours, just looking at the full magnitude of faith's effects. But I hope to touch on it a little bit here today. Um, for the chapter reading, I guess you can count it as a chapter. I'm going to be reading Jude chapter 1, a.k.a. the whole letter of Jude. <laughs> um, but if you're following along, that's just where I'm going to start from. And then I have a couple more verses to read from. This is greeting. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Judgment on False Teachers Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh sayings that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, sharing favoritism to gain advantage. A Call to Persevere But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, 
Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Doxology Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So before I read some of these other um, verses, Jude is, this is an interesting letter. This is kind of an interesting chapter to read from to talk about faith. Um, but Jude talked about a couple of things. First, Jude spoke about false teachers. Basically talking about how false teachers that, that lead you away um, from the grace of God, lead you away from the, the, the gospel of peace. That they're very destructive, that they're, they're hard for other faith. They tear us down. Um, and a lot of Jude's letter kept going back to Jesus. When we talked about faith, when we talked about staying um, clean and holy as his people, I mean, I say we, I mean Jude, um, it always goes back to God. It always goes back to Jesus. Um, and I think that's how our faith should be. I think our faith should be rooted in Jesus. I think with if we don't have our faith grounded in somebody perfect, with somebody who has perfect authority and sovereignty, who's perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfectly just, like Jesus, then our faith will crumble. We could put our faith in anything, like hypothetically, and we could put our faith in a rock, like just an ordinary rock. But if we're um, fighting for our lives, or if we're hungry, that faith is not going to be able to help us. And so again, I think it comes into putting our faith in things that, or, or somebody, aka Jesus or God, who we know will care for us, who has shown us his love, who has shown us his authority and his sovereignty um, through his word or just in eyewitnesses like some of the apostles. Um, and um, Jude speaks about faith as being something that we should really watch out for. That we should really watch out to keep our faith in good and strong amounts. Um, and to comment a little bit more on that, I have a couple verses here. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 7. And it says, So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Here's another verse. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. So, to go back to what Paul was talking about, in he well, I guess we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is, but whoever the author of Hebrews is, we get this definition of faith. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction or the belief of things not seen. And so another, I, I got another definition of faith. Another definition of faith is intellectual assurance and trust. 
Now, this is interesting. So there's two aspects to faith. There's this intellectual assurance, which is very similar to the writer of Hebrews was saying the assurance of things hoped for. And so it's, it's, it's insurance. It's, it's intellectual assurance. And then we also have trust, which is like the belief of things not seen. That requires trust. And so one example of faith is let's take a chair, like just a, a, well-built, a well-built chair, like it's just a chair. And let's apply the two aspects of faith to the, to the chair. The first aspect of faith, the first aspect of faith, excuse me, I misspoke, is intellectual assurance. So let's look at the chair and say, okay, with our eyes, with our judgments, we can see that the chair is well built and appears sturdy. Okay, that's intellectual assurance. The other application of faith is trust. So to truly have faith in the chair, we have to make a judgment that, it, that, that we're assured intellectually, the chair is sound. Okay, that's great. To truly have faith in the chair, we must also trust in the chair. And to trust in the chair, we have to we have to make an action. We have to sit in it. And I think that's how faith is. If if we just know of something, well, that that's not necessarily mean we're putting our faith in it. It says in the Bible says even the demons know of God, but we must know of something and put our trust in it. So the demons know God, right? That doesn't mean they're putting their faith in God. Clearly, they're they're opposing God, right? Um, so the true testament of faith is to have knowledge and to trust with action. I think that's what we're called to do as Christians. We can say that we have faith in God, but if we're not trusting Him in our actions, if we don't have intellectual assurance, then I think our, our faith might be under attack. And maybe it may be in danger. Um... And so when we talk about faith in God, I think, and this I think this goes along with the free will topic, this is a little bit of me, this is a little bit more of my opinion, but I think you guys will agree with me. Part of the reason that God gave us free will was to give us the opportunity to freely choose Him. He wanted His creation to love Him out of their will. He, he wanted us to willingly love Him. He didn't just want us to make us flesh robots that just had to worship God. He wanted us to choose to follow Him. He wanted us to choose to put our faith in Him. He wanted us to choose to love Him and to choose God. So when people talk about that there's no, there's no conclusive proof for God, um, I think this, that's kind of a yes, you're right, and also no, you're not right. I think God has given us enough evidence that we have the choice to choose Him, but we also have the choice to not choose Him. Like, if, if God is truly loving, He will not force us to pick Him. He also won't for, force us to not pick Him. And so, that's part of what faith is. And I think that's part of the reason that the author of, he, of Hebrews said that faith is also the conviction of things not seen. That doesn't mean our faith is blind. But that means with what we have, we have the choice to have these convictions. So it doesn't mean that we're completely blind in our faith. But it means that we're also putting our faith in something that sometimes we're not going to be able to see. Even though we can have intellectual assurance in other aspects, like the Word of God, or in arguments for God, um, or personal experiences with God, you know, all these things can give us intellectual assurance. And so because of this, He's given us just enough evidence to be able to choose Him, but He hasn't forced us to choose Him either. 
If he was just a fact, if, if God was just a pure scientific fact, no one would have the choice to choose him. Because the evidence would be overwhelmingly clear. It's like saying gravity doesn't exist. <laughs> like we have so much evidence for gravity, and clearly we see its effects, that we know gravity exists. And while I also think that we can experience the effects of God, um, such as his creation, this world he's made, um, morality, actually having objective morality, that all points back to God. And if you're curious about that, look up those arguments. You'll find what you're looking for. Um, but I think faith is very similar. So for us as Christians, we need to pray to God and search to God for this intellectual assurance. If we find ourselves doubting his existence, it puts us into the, sh the shoes of Hebrews 11.6. And it says, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So if we, if, if we want to draw near to God, we have to have this intellectual assurance that he does exist and that he rewards those or he, or he, offers his hands to those who seek him. And so we see that really having intellectual assurance of his existence is important um, for us Christians. And I would say if you're not a Christian, then to really put faith in some other worldview, like naturalism or whatever worldview you have, I would also think it's important to have faith in that, whatever that might be. But faith is also putting trust in what we believe in. So for us Christians, we have intellectual assurance of God, and we also choose to trust Him. Even though we don't see Him right now, even though we, we have His Word, even though we don't have, we don't see God everywhere, right? Physically, I mean. Um, we choose to trust in Him, and then to, to, to depend on that trust for our actions. We choose to share the Word. We choose to go to church. We choose to pray. Um, we choose to do good to people. We choose to love him and to love other people, um, relying on that trust and that intellectual assurance. It's action out of this trust and assurance. And I think that's the whole point of faith. Um, and there's another verse I'm working on memorizing. I don't think I have it completely. Um, I think it's Mark 11, verse 22 through 24. I could be wrong on that, so please forgive me. I, I am. But... Basically, Jesus is he. Here, I'll just I'll just try to paraphrase. Jesus said to his disciples, "I tell you, um, have faith in God." So here's the faith. He's saying, "Have faith in God." I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, "May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea," and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no darts, uh, darts, have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe. That you've received, that you've received it, it will be yours. So even what does Jesus tell us? He says Jesus is also affirming this viewpoint of faith being intellectual assurance and trust. We have to have intellectual assurance that one, God is real for him, for him to even answer our prayer to throw the, the mountain into the sea. But we also have to have this trust that it will actually happen. That will actually happen. So I say you must believe and have no doubts in your heart. And likewise, that's the kind of faith that we are called to have as Christians. God calls faith, he compares faith to a mustard seed. That when it's planted, 
it grows into a huge, strong tree. Um, so another thing I want to encourage all of us about so even if we feel like we don't have the super strong faith um, that I that I that the Bible talks about um, that we've been discussing today, that we can rest assured that in that little bit of faith we have to pray to God, to ask Him help help grow my assurance, help grow my trust in You, help um, help me to um, rely on this assurance and this trust in You in my actions. And please help me to do it with no doubt. Please help me to have a faith so strong. It's like a mustard tree. So strong and powerful and immovable. That's the kind of faith we're called to have. Um, and again, faith is pivotal to every single part of the biblical experience and worldview. It's pivotal to salvation, prayer, miracles, evangelizing, overcoming sin, overcoming fear, overcoming doubts, and even in everyday life, we put our faith in things, even if we think about it or not. Like, I can pick up this this pair of scissors. I have a, I have a pair of scissors in my hand. I, I have intellectual assurance that these scissors will work. I also trust that when I put these scissors to action, that it will do what it's meant to do. And we take something like that just for granted. Again, like the, the chair example, um, or our beds, or our houses. We, we have assurance and trust that we can make actions relying on the foundation of our house. And likewise, I think our faith in God should be that ingrained in us as well. That if we pray to someone, God, please heal this person, that we would have no doubt that it would happen. If we say, God, please help me, that we would have no doubt it happens. Or if we say, please, God, answer my broken heart, my cries to you, that we would have no doubt that he will. That's the kind of faith that God wills for us to have. Um, and, now, and now I think it's a little bit more clear why Paul describes it as a shield. Because it's intentional. Because it has to do with action. We, we, have, we have to have assurance and trust in our shield. But we also have to put it to action to actually test it. And I think faith is no different. If we want strong faith, then God's given us up was going to give us opportunities to put up that field of, shield of faith. And one of two things will happen. Either our faith will pass a test and it'll deflect the challenge, or it won't. And we'll have to rethink our faith in God. We'll have to rethink the strength of our faith. But either way, it refines our faith. Jesus talks about refined faith being more precious than gold. Um, more precious than gold refined seven times over. And so we, we understand just how valuable this is. Just how valuable this is. And if faith is part of our, um, I don't want to say condition, but kind of our condition for salvation, I think we should take this very seriously as Christians. Um, if, we, if we really are doubting or if we're living like we don't have faith in God at all, I think we should meditate. I think we should repent about that. I think we should pray for God to give us opportunities to grow our faith um, because this is a really big deal. This is a really big deal. As for me, this is something I've been struggling, personally struggling with. I've been struggling with faith. Um, I've been working on some apologetic content on YouTube, and I faced some really um, harsh and very critical feedback from people. And I had to chew on that. I had to chew on all of these opposing arguments. And I had to look at their side. I had to look at their argument. And I had to weigh their side with what my worldview was. And I had to figure out, do I actually have faith in this? Is what they're saying more reliable than what I believe in? And it's and it's and it's it sent me down a spiral of doubts, of fears. 
saying what 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 if the world just exists and there's no there is no God? What if God doesn't exist? What if all my understanding of the Bible is just wrong? Like all these huge huge doubts and questions. Um, but then I realized that I was going too far. Um, that I could I could make the action of putting my shield of faith in front of me, and I realized. I just had to I just had to put the faith into action. So what I did was I took the faith in God and the faith in let's say naturalism for example, which is the argument that was being spoken against me. So I'll just use that for example. I say, okay, let's think about this. I have these two faiths that I'm kind of stuck in between. Let's test them out. Let's put them in action and see what happens. So I took the naturalism and I said, okay. If we really are just naturalistic creatures, that we really just happen through abiogenesis, that's the modern theory, I don't buy into it, but I'll continue, that we so happen just to be in the perfect, the perfect spot, the perfect time, with the perfect combination of proteins, to make somehow one perfect cell in all, its, all of its complexity, with the mitochondria, um, the, the DNA, the lysosomes, all these things for, for a cell, that somehow that just happened naturally by inorganic chemistry, okay? And that, that somehow that cell was able to eat and reproduce somehow and continue that for billions of years until we got where we're at now. To me, I could reconcile with some aspects of evolution. Like maybe one creature did evolve into two different creatures, like a, like a tiger and a lion. Like they're two big cats with different characteristics. Okay, that's believable. We have humans with different characteristics. We have um, some humans with one skin color, a different skin color. We have some humans with brown hair or red hair or blonde hair. We have some huge humans that are six feet tall, 200, 300 pounds. We have small humans, which are five feet, four feet, even smaller than that. And so to me, okay, I, I could reconcile with that. But to think that all of these things just happen perfectly with inorganic chemistry, that there's no mind behind our DNA, um, I, I couldn't put my faith in that. So it fell apart. I lacked the intellectual assurance of that worldview. And because of that, in addition with other things like uh, the arguments of cause and effect, the Kalam cosmological argument, um, you know, some of these other things, I, I, I couldn't put my trust and faith in that. So I went to the other side and I think, okay, I have this biblical worldview. Why am I putting my faith in it? And so I started asking some questions. My first one was, why should I even think God exists? And the reason why I think God exists kind of goes back to the reason why I don't think naturalism can be an answer. Which is saying, if everything just exists and that there's no mind behind it, and we apply the law of cause and effect to it, or it's not really a law, it's just a um, method or principle, you know, whatever word you want to use. We know that there's two ways to have an effect. We can have an effect that makes an effect. To, visual, to visualize that, that, that's like the domino effect. So if, one, if, you know, if you're halfway through dominoes, the effect of one domino will push over the other domino. So it just keeps going. This is kind of like how you have weather cycles. And you talk about, you learn about the water cycle in elementary school. It rains, but then because it rains, we have water. And then because we have water, it evaporates. And then it rains again. You know, like, all these effects, effects just continue to um, have this cycle. But I thought, how can I apply that to the universe? 
If the universe is truly just a whole bunch of effects, there's no one cause to the universe, then we have an infinite regress. And I, that doesn't work. Like, you would just go back forever and ever. Um, but at some point, no matter what you believe in, we have to believe that the, the universe has some sort of cause. And if we're talking about the universe as needing a cause, then that cause for the universe has to be outside the universe. Um, Christians like to call this the first uncaused, un, um, wait, how do they word it? The, um, the first uncaused cause. That sounds weird. Basically, it's saying we have a cause, but the thing that, that made that cause was uncaused. Or that cause thing would also need a cause, and it would infinitely regress again. And when we call that first cause, and, oh, I guess I should stop. I should explain the other way we have an effect, which is with an agent, with a personal agent. So, for example, let's say you pushed over the dominoes, right? We know that one domino can knock over the other domino, and it can continue, but at some point it may stop. But to even start that chain of effects, we have to have one intelligent agent that decided, that chose with a mind to start that chain. So when we look at the, when we look at, um, the universe, it seems like a lot of effects on effects on effects on effects. Um, and I mean, scientists would agree with that as well. But you still have to beg the question, if the universe is truly eternal, then that doesn't work. There would be no cause to start this chain. And it's, it's, it's illogical. But, and a lot of scientists do think the universe had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now, the spe there's a whole lot of naturalistic speculation about it. I don't think any of it's very convincing. But if we look at the, the, the most widely accepted Big Bang model, which is to say, we have a point of zero volume, literally zero space, at t equals zero, so before time existed, and they claim that the temperature and the density is infinite. And what do you think, okay, how can you say that? And really it has to do with the equations, right? So density is mass over volume. So if we have zero volume, if we have any sort of mass, then it's just going to be zero density, right? Or if you have zero, well, actually, I don't think you can, can you divide by zero? Um, anyway, but just to catch the chase here, <laughs> the mass is zero and the volume is zero, so really uh, density equals undefined. Um, but they kind of mess with it a little bit to say it's infinity, inf infinity instead. Basically, the picture we're getting is that mathematically with our science, we have no space, no matter, no density, and out of that came our universe. And so you have to say, if that, if with such a dramatic effect, it clear, it's clear that there's not an effect that started that. And even if there was an effect that started that, how did such an effect take place? We can't observe it. And so either way, there needs to be a first cause. And this first cause for us Christians would be, would be God. Someone intelligent that orchestrated all these things. Um, and now, that's, some people kind of don't like the argument. I think it's a very strong one. I hope I explain it okay. Another argument for God's existence, which I buy into, is the moral argument for God. Naturalists, or most naturalists, if you talk to an evolutionary scientist, they'll tell you that morality is somehow an objective facade 
created in our head for the betterment of the survival of our species. And I have a couple problems with that. <laughs> the first one being, if it's just a facade, if it's a lie, that means in reality, morality is not even a thing. You're right, but to me, in my life, I don't want to be able to look at murder and rape and say, that's not objectively wrong. Like, that's not wrong. Like, if you have a worldview that's saying rape and murder um, and sex trafficking and human trafficking, trafficking aren't actually evil things, then I think we're flawed somewhere. Deep in our hearts, we know that there is true evil out there. And when, we, and when we experience it, it's just horrible. And so, I did not buy into that 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 perspective of evolutionary morality. And a lot of people don't, to be fair. I'm not saying you guys do, or all non-believers do. But that's, that's one theory, is it's just a facade. The other theory, or a, another theory, is that morality is objective. That we have a standard outside of ourselves to actually objectively say one thing is wrong and one thing isn't wrong. Or that one thing is good and one thing evil. Um, and I think we have a lot of evidence for this. Um, moral relativists will always use the example that each country has its own unique relative morality. I would say, well, kind of, but also not really, right? They might have different traditions or cultures that they think have moral value. But deep down in every country in nature, um, not nature, nation, um, from what we can observe now to as far back as we can see, that they had this ought. We separate the ought from the is. We can look at science and say things are like this. Like we could look at a tree and say its objective morality is that it just grows. But we really don't know that. We don't if know, know if trees have objective morality. All we can see is what it is. If we look at what we are as humans, and we just look at what is our behavior, and that's our objective morality, then I think we would, that would be very bad, right? Um, because our is would be, there is murder. There is rape. There is theft. There is deceit. There is lying. There is um, personas. There is... Um, so much pain and hurt that we humans cause. Let's say, those aren't good things. We don't think those are good things. So we have to go outside of ourselves to look for a standard. And if that thing isn't human, it's outside of human, and it's also outside of nature, because let's say animals kill each other too, animals rape, um, and sometimes it's good for the survival of the species, which is another criticism of the evolutionary morality. Then it has to be something beyond nature, Right? And I think we can, agree, we can agree on that. We can all agree that we have this ought, that we have this way of looking at behavior. We know it's ought to be good, to be selfless. We know it's ought, it, 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 it's a good ought to love our family. It's a good ought to be productive for society, for example. Um, there's lots more oughts. It's good, it's, it's good to love people. And you know, this whole ideal set of ought. And so many of us fail to meet that standard, even though that's what we ha we all have the standard. Um, we know it's odd, to, it's good to not cheat, right? Um, and if we if we find ourselves violating the standard, a lot of times we find excuses for it, or we try to justify it somehow. So even our everyday behavior, it testifies to this objective law of morality, or you could say this um, idealistic human behavior that's beyond herself. I think that also points to God. Because because good and evil is a spectrum. Good is one end, and evil is way on the other end, right? But for a spectrum to exist, you have to have 
the the two ends you have to have the two ends like defined right if we don't know what good is then how can we call anything good we don't have any definition for it if we don't know what evil is how can we call anything good right or anything evil and so we have to have some sort of standard i think this is also a strong case for god um even though it doesn't get straight us to god but um the 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 biblical god talks about morality a lot of the morality talks about in the bible um also is reflected in society like monogamy like just two people marrying each other that's a biblical concept even the jews and the israelites in the old testament they had many wives and and god was like uh no that's not how i designed you guys to be um israelites in the old testament would rape and god's like no I don't want you to have any sex outside of marriage, and I want sex to only be between a married man and woman, right? And so you even see, we see even in the Old Testament, and this is a common objection to in the Old Testament, and all it says is that the Old Testament describes what happened. It describes the compromise that the Israelites would make. It would describe the compromises that Moses sometimes made, like about divorce and about sexual immorality. But it's not what God said it ought to be. And Jesus gave us that ought on the Sermon on the Mount and, and how he worded things and how he told his disciples. He, he gave us a very large ought. See, you ought to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You ought to, to, um, to be, uh, f f um, not to have sexual infidelity, like respect your partner and only have sex in marriage or like, don't murder people. That was even in the Old Testament. That was a thing. So I think God is a very strong case for why we can have morality, why we have the universe, um, and in such perfect ways too. Like we're like, I don't know. I I can't I can't put my faith in the fact that somehow inorganic inorganic chemistry just somehow made one cell that was able to start moving and just living life and that somehow lived. Even though it was the only cell, somehow it ate and survived, and then mutated for so long to make all of these creatures we see now. Um, some people can put their faith in that. But when I weigh my intellectual assurance and what I can put my trust in, the the God of the Bible always wins for me. And so that's why I'm here. That's why a lot, that's why a lot of Christians are here. Other things like near-death experiences, even credible near-death experiences, point to God too. Um, um, or we even see modern day miracles, even though they get hidden a lot. We have people explaining these unexplicable, unexplicable things. And they have this testimony. It's like, how do you explain that? And, and to me, it all points back to God. And so whether you're a believer or not, I would just ask you to chew on what you're putting faith in. Um, if you are a believer, I, I would encourage you guys to ask God to seek after a stronger and an unconquerable and impenetrable faith. To really grow in faith in God. To grow in love for God. That was one of the rebukes that um, God made um, in the some of the churches in, in the, the Revelations of John. So the churches, the, the, the churches weren't putting their faith in God. They weren't. They, they their faith was diminishing. Their God, their love for God was diminishing. So whatever our circumstances may be. I would just ask us to meditate on this. Um, this is a really important thing, and this is our shield. Whether you're a Christian or not, faith is a shield of sorts. It justifies what you're doing, justifies why you're doing things, how you live your life. So all of us have a shield of some sort. The question is, 
How strong is that shield? How durable is that shield? How well can we put that shield up? And as Christians, I think this is really important for us as well. Clearly, it's huge for the Christian life. Um, so, I really, um, I really just <laughs> deep dove into deep deep dove into this, but um, I, I hope this is fruitful for you guys, and um, I hope I could share the biblical position and, and share a little bit about my own struggles, my own um, back and forth about faith and in, in Christ and God. So. But I also encourage you guys that we don't have to be perfect about our faith. Um, but just like um, Paul talked about to Timothy, he said, I have fought the good fights, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And for us Christians, keeping the faith helps us to finish the race. With that, I'm going to pray us out. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for convicting me so, so much, Lord. I feel it. Thank you for convicting me. I hope that you have convicted other people listening to this, Lord. And I just pray that you would help grow our faith, that you would give us experiences to make our faith stronger and, and more um, durable and unconquerable, Lord. Um, remind us that we are more than conquerors in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for putting this world together, for stitching us in our mother's wombs, for creating such beautiful and complex life. Thank you, God, for giving us um, the definition of good and evil. Thank you, God, for um, loving us and making yourself known to us through your prophets. Thank you for the fulfilled prophecy in the Bible in Ezekiel 26, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. Thank you for predicting the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, to testify to your existence, to testify um, to the world that you are a God who acts, that you are a God who exists, that you are a God who is all-powerful, Lord. And I just pray that Every knee shall bow to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that you would come soon, Lord Jesus Christ, that we, we all of creation, all your children are in labor pains, that we are ready for you, that we ache for you, God. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to be patient uh, for the things that are, are, are not seen yet. Help us to have hope in the things not seen. Help us to have intellectual, emotional uh, assurance in what you've done for us. And help us to live out our life in trust and in action by putting our faith in you, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for being the rock we build our lives on. Thank you for being the foundation of our worldview. Um, in Jesus Christ, we can never have enough gratitude or love for you. And we, th we just thank you so much. Um, in Jesus Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen. Okay, guys, I will be back um, hopefully soon to talk about the, the fifth episode of the series, which will be... Uh, I think the Helmets of Salvation. Yes, it'll be the Helmets of Salvation. Which is an amazing, amazing and fun conversation to have. So, God bless you all. Thank you so much for listening, especially if you stuck around this long. I love you guys so much. Um, and I pray that uh, God will answer, answer us about um, making our faith stronger and more durable. So, um, until then, thank you for watching Jacked for Jesus.